As Easter approaches um, each year, there are a series of television shows that come out. Typically, they are on uh, CNN or Discovery Channel or National Geographic, and there's something like this. Who is the real Jesus? Or finding Jesus, uncovering the mysteries of Jesus, or the hidden Jesus of the Gospels. And they bring in these experts to debate who the real Jesus is. I, I can't say that I would recommend them to you. Um, what you'll normally find is that they're not really looking for Jesus. They're actually looking to recreate Jesus in their own image. Uh, find a Jesus that looks and agrees with them. But the question that they pose is valid. It's a valid question for us. Who is Jesus Christ. If I asked you this morning, what would you say? Who is Jesus? Uh, The Pharisees in our passage this morning asked that question of Jesus. Jesus, who are you? And indeed, that's the question we've been asking in this series in the Gospel of John. Uh, John, uh, that's the purpose for which he wrote his Gospel. Remember at the end, he says in John 20, verse 31, that these things are written so that you may believe in that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So that's a question that we're going to look to answer again this morning. Who is Jesus? And we'll look to John 8 uh, for the answer. But before we read the text, let's pray and let's ask God for his help as we read it. Father, we come again on a Sunday morning, and uh, we come uh, from different places. Uh, Some of us are distracted, some of us are hurting, uh, lonely, some of us eager to hear from your word, but I pray that no matter where we are, that you would meet us in exactly the place uh, that we need, that by your word and spirit that you would come now and that you would speak, and that you would change us, and that you would give us hearing ears and believing hearts as we encounter your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. We're going to read from John uh, chapter 8, beginning in verse 12 and going down uh, to verse 30. Hear God's word. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke 
in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Amen. I want to look at this passage in four parts. Uh, first, I want to offer some perspective on what it would have been like to hear Jesus. And secondly, uh, to look at the proclamation that Jesus declares. Uh, thirdly, the promise that he makes to those who listen. And then lastly, proof. So, uh, perspective, proclamation, promise, and proof. Uh, so, in the first part, I want to situate uh, ourselves in the context of this passage Uh, John 8 really comes alive in a new way when you consider it, uh, how they would have heard this. Uh, You'll probably notice in uh, your copy of God's Word uh, that chapter 7, verses 53 through chapter 8, verse 11, um, oftentimes will have double brackets around it. And usually there is some kind of note at the bottom of the page uh, that this passage is not found in our earliest manuscripts uh, we use the ESV at this church, and the ESV notes uh, in the Bible that earliest manuscripts do not include uh, these verses. Uh, from what we know, that these verses were added at a later at a later date, and they were not included in John's uh, original gospel. But it quite possibly could have been written by John uh, at another time. Uh, but one thing is for certain about that passage is that it'll preach. Uh, It's a very dramatic scene. You have uh, Jesus drawing a line in the sand, a woman uh, thrown out who was caught in adultery, and the scribes leaving one by one. It's a dramatic scene, and it will preach, but it's just not in John's original gospel. Uh, But when you take those verses out of uh, chapter 8, you will see that chapter 7 flows right into our passage this morning, and that Jesus is still at the festival of booths. He's still at the festival uh, of tabernacles. Uh, Jason preached from chapter 7 last week and talked a little bit about it, Uh, but the festival of booths is one of those, the three festivals each year when all of Israel would gather together for a celebration. And for an entire week, for seven days, they would have a big citywide, nationwide camp out. You would set up a booth or a tent on your roof, and you would move out of your perfectly good house for a week, and you would celebrate. This was the biggest party of the year. 
Uh, they would say, if you wanted to see joy, you would want to go to this festival. Um, but God commanded his people to have fun. Uh, that's interesting to remember, that they were commanded to go to this festival and they were commanded uh, to have joy. They were commanded to celebrate. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He commanded this week-long campout party. Uh, but I will say that the idea of camping out in the backyard is not, uh, it doesn't bring me uninhibited joy like it might have to them. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of electricity. Uh, I think that's one of God's graces to us. Central heat and air, that's how you know God loves you. Um, and indoor plumbing is just, it's just a good thing. But um, it seems like camping just makes life harder than it has to be. Um, I can go camping for a night, but after that, I'm tired of living like a caveman, and I'm ready to go back home. Uh, so the idea of a week-long campout does not appeal uh, to me. It isn't what I want to do for spring break, uh, but it was with these people, and it was the party of the year. But what were they celebrating? Uh, this festival had both historical significance, and it had uh, agricultural significance, uh, this was at the end, this is in the fall, and so all of the hard work of the year was done, all of the crops were in, and so they would gather to celebrate. God provided again this year. God provided food for us again this year, but it had historical significance as well. They were celebrating God's protection, God's provision, God's presence with them uh, in their wilderness wandering. Uh, in Leviticus 23, a passage that I know all of you have memorized, um, God commands his people uh, Concerning this festival, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generation may know that I, uh, that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. And so this festival was a reenactment of the past. Uh, they were pretending as though they were in the wilderness, wandering, and God was providing for them. Think about Civil War battle reenactments. You have these people that dress up in the old uniforms. Uh, They shoot the old guns. They go out to the old battlefields and they tell the old tales. Why? It's the way of remembering the past. It's not just that they would talk about it. It's not just that they would read the stories, but they actually bodily tried to reenact as a means of memory. And we're going to do the same thing in a little while. We're going to reenact the old story each week as we come to the table. It's not enough that we would just hear and read that Jesus' body and his blood were spilled for us, but that we reenact this each and every week. We get together and we tell the same old story each and every week. This festival was a way of reenacting what God had done, how God had provided for them in the wilderness. You'll remember in the wilderness, God had just delivered them from Pharaoh. They were in bondage in Egypt. They were slaves in a foreign land, but God set them free. And he promised them a land. He said, I'm going to give you a land free from your enemies, where milk and honey flow, where you will be free to serve and love me. But between Egypt and the promised land, there was 
wilderness, a wilderness where they wandered for 40 years. If you think a seven-day camp out is a long time, just imagine the real thing, a 40-year camp out. Now, at this festival, they would remember that God was faithful to them, that God had not left them in the wilderness, of how when they were hungry, God rained down manna from heaven, how he provided daily bread for them, that in the wilderness, they didn't lack for anything. They would remember how when they were thirsty in the desert that God made rock, God made water appear out of a rock. That when they were hot under the blazing sun in the desert, God provided a cloud for them. God's presence was made known to them in the cloud, in the glory cloud that shaded them from the scorching heat of the sun. And when they were cold and scared at night, God provided a pillar of fire for them that they would know that they were not alone, even if they had no clue where they were. God was gracious to them. He was their shade in the day. He was their light at night. He rained down manna each day and provided water from a rock. Over and over again, God was reminding them that he was their God. He was with them, that he would provide for them. And when you think of how God provided for his people in the wilderness, there are really three pictures that come to mind. You have bread, you have water, and you have fire. And we see those same three objects in this section of the Gospel of John. And what I think John is trying to do in this Gospel is to show us that Jesus is the true and better Moses. That he is leading his people into a true and better promised land. And that the protection and the provision that that the people had in the desert is met and surpassed And Jesus, just think about John chapter 6. He's not manna for man. He is the bread of life. Not just manna for a day, but he is the bread of life. If you eat of him, you will have eternal life. He's the true manna from heaven, the true bread of life. Move on to chapter 7 in this feast. If you remember, there was a ceremony. The priest would go around and would pour out water. He would say, not water from a rock for a day, but the priest would circle the altar and pour out water, and they would remember that God had provided for them in the desert, that in unlikely ways and in unlikely times, God provided water for them. But at the end of John 7, Jesus tells them that if they believe in him, out of them will flow rivers of living water. Not just water from a rock, not just water for a day, but that Jesus is the true and better rock. As Paul tells us, that rock was Christ. And from him flows life. From him flows blessing and nourishment for the world. So we have John 6, bread of life. John 7, water. John 8, we have Jesus, the light of the world. That Jesus is declaring that he is the presence of God in the midst, that he gives life, that he gives shade, that he is the light of life. Just one more thing about the Feast of Booths that I think will pull all of this together. In addition to the ceremony of pouring out the water during this festival, during this week-long campout, they also had a way of remembering the pillar of fire at night. Uh, During the feast, there were these huge candelabras in the temple. And there were four of them, and they were kept burning the entire time as a sign, as as a reminder that God led his people in the wilderness And these were not just your ordinary candelabras. Think Olympic torch. I think uh, these are four Olympic torches that are going to be 
that will be lit the entire week as a reminder that God provided for his people. They were probably 50 to 75 feet tall. They were in the most prominent place in the most prominent building in the entire town. And writers would say that uh, at, at this festival that every courtyard in Jerusalem was lit because of these torches. This was a huge bonfire in the middle of the city, and the party would continue into the night because they had light by night. The whole city was illumined by these lights. And there's just something that's captivating about a bonfire in the middle of darkness. Uh, you know, if you have one, this is actually a good time of year to do it. You, you'll just stand around and stare at the fire. There's just something that's captivating about it. You just sort of stand in a circle and stare at it, and it's mesmerizing. Uh, and eventually somebody's going to bring out a guitar, and somebody's going to see what they can burn, and someone's going to see whether they can blow themselves up in the fire. And there's these primal instincts to burn stuff that just comes out when you uh, are at a bonfire. But in John 8, we're at the, we're at the end of the festival. Uh, the fire's either going out or the fire is out. And the lights are out, party's over, it's time to head home. And it's with this perspective... After they had just seen the bonfire all week, Jesus stands up in their midst and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus stands up and he says, this is all about me. Everything that you've been doing points to me. Everything in this festival, the water, the fire, the booths, the celebration, the protection, the presence, it's all about me. It all points to him. So that's the perspective. But what is it that Jesus actually proclaims in this passage? I am the light of the world. There's both an exclusive element to this and an inclusive aspect to what Jesus is saying in verse 12. First, the exclusive claim that he makes. He starts with I am. I am the light of the world. And to his original hearers and to us, he is pointing us back to Exodus 3. You'll remember in the desert, Moses at the burning bush asking God to give him his name, and God replies with his name, I am that I am. And Jesus is using the covenant name of God. He's identifying himself as God, and Jesus does this at least seven more times in the book of John when he says, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is identifying himself with the covenant name of God. That in the closest and the most intimate way that he is claiming that he and the Father are one. This would have infuriated his listeners. This would have been a scandal that he would claim the name of God as his own. But Jesus not only says, I am, but I am the light of the world. He didn't say, Hey guys, I am a light in the world. I'm I'm a light among other lights in the world. He didn't say, I've come to point you to the light. He didn't say, if you follow my teachings, you'll be enlightened. He said, I am the light of the world. That all truth, all life is found in me. And that if you are not connected to me, that you are in darkness. That if you want to know God, if you want to be in his presence, if you want to draw near to God, you have to come to me. 
I am the light. If you're not in me, you are in darkness. That there is no spiritual light apart from Jesus. Wherever he is not present, wherever the light of his presence is not known, it is darkness. This is an exclusive claim by Jesus, and we see it over and over in the Gospel of John. If you want to know God, you've got to look at Jesus. You've got to come to Jesus. You can't get there from anywhere else. But there's also an inclusive proclamation that Jesus makes, that I am the light of the world. He's not just a light to a certain group of people. He's not the light of the Jews only, but he's come for the whole world. He's not just the light that fills the courtyards of Jerusalem for a week, but he is the light of all of creation. In one statement, Jesus is saying that he is the exclusive source of light and truth, but that access to him is available for absolutely everyone. It's no secret that our world is filled with darkness. Our world is filled with violence, with disease, and with wars. Our nation is filled with strife, with hatred, division, greed, sins of every kind. There's sins in our own relationship. Relationships with one another, there's disconnection in marriage, there's brokenness as a result of sin. There's dysfunction, abuse, and infidelity, and envy, and pride. It's everywhere. But the darkness is not just out there. The darkness is within us as well. There's darkness in our own souls. In our inner world, there are dark secrets, hidden, covered by years of shame and guilt. Things that if they came to light, you would want to die. But we hide them in the darkness of our own souls. But the proclamation that Jesus makes is that there's not one square inch of this world, there's not one square inch of your soul on which his light does not shine. That he is the light of the world, that he has come for the darkness, and there is not one square inch that his light cannot overcome. You might think there's no hope for me, that it is too dark, that I can't imagine anything in my life other than the present darkness that I feel There's no way that God could redeem my situation. There's no way that God could love me with what I have done. We're reminded in this passage that it is the darkness that he seeks out. That he came for the lost. He came for the broken. He came for the hurting. He came as a light for the nations, as a light for the dark and broken places in all of us and in all of the world. We're reminded that no one and nowhere is beyond his love and care for us. No matter the darkness you find yourself in this morning, whether from the outside, whether from things that have been done to you or things that you have done yourself, the proclamation is that the light of the world is for you. But what is the promise that he makes to us? The proclamation that he is, he is the light of the world But the promise is that those who follow him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. At the end of verse 12, in the original language, there's an extra word that's not put in most English translations. It's an extra article. It's the. And so it really reads, they will have light of the life. 
And so what it's saying, it's there for emphasis. And so what you might translate it as, those who follow me won't walk in darkness, but they will have the light of real life. They will have real life. You know, there's no shortage of products uh, that offer us real life. Uh, There's no shortage of uh, things that would say, buy this product and you'll experience real life. We're bombarded with the message that our life is in the dark, our life is meaningless, our life is insignificant, but if you buy this, if you're part of this group, then you'll have real life. Just look at your favorite magazine. Look at the advertisements in there. What are they selling you? They're not just selling you a product. They're selling you a life. They're selling you their version of the good life. This is real life. Follow us and you'll have real life. If you want to be happy, if you want to be content, if you want to be significant, you're going to have to follow us to have real life. And what is implicit in all this advertising is that you have something that is lacking. You are in the dark, and you are not complete, and what they have can make you complete. The promise of real life is all around us, but Jesus in this passage says, if you want real life, it's only found in him. True joy and true contentment can only be found in him. But let's admit that there's something that can be really threatening about what Jesus is saying to us as well, that light is not always a welcome thing. Light is not always, sometimes it's just better uh, to live in the dark. Darkness can be an appealing option. You might have experienced this in changing a light bulb in your bathroom. You went from a 40 watt to a 100 watt. The intensity of the light is greater and you begin to see, wow, this room is a little bit dirtier than I first thought. Or wow, I've got a few more wrinkles and blemishes than I first thought. And you think, you know, maybe I just want to go get some 40-watt bulbs and put them back in there because it's just more convenient to be in the dark. The same is true of God. When we are in the light, what is true of us is exposed. Even the stuff that we didn't know, even stuff we didn't realize, we begin to see. And the closer we are to the light, the more that we will see. And that is a scary thing for us. To be in the light of God, to be exposed... But it's a scary thing unless you are convinced that whatever is revealed by the light is covered by the blood of Jesus. Unless you are convinced that he is the light of all of creation who took on all of our darkness and that in him all of our sins are forgiven. When we believe that we are loved and accepted by Jesus, we are free to admit our faults. We are free to confess our sins because we know that whatever comes to light is covered in him. But don't miss the part of what Jesus is promising. He's promising that he'll be with us. Um, He's promising uh, that in the same way that he was with the Israelites, that he's going to be with us. You know, what did the Israelites need to be reminded of again and again in the wilderness? If I was there for 40 years, I need to be reminded again, God, are you with us? God, have you left us? If they ever wondered, all they'd have to do was look up. Yep, God, you're still there. Clouds there by day, the fire is there by night. Even if they seem like they'd been in the same place for a long time, even if life seemed like it was upside down, God was nowhere to be found, all they had to do was look up. God was with them. 
God had not left them. And maybe that's what you need to hear this morning, that God has not left you. That life might seem really dark right now. That you don't know where God is. Has he left? This passage is a reminder to you that God has not and will not leave his people. That you are not alone in the darkness. That God is with you. But after Jesus proclaims, after he promises, he offers proof. The Pharisees come back at him in these last verses in the passage, and they say, Jesus, uh, how can we know that what you are saying is true? Why don't you give us some proof? You're bearing witness about yourself. Um, what you were saying is just like your opinion, man. Like, what, do you have any witnesses that can prove that you are the light of the world? Their response uh, amounts to them calling Jesus a liar. But in God, in the grace of Jesus, he gives them proof. He gives them the proof, maybe not what they were looking for, but he gives them proof. In response to their protest, uh, Jesus says, I do have a witness. Verse 18, I bear witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Jesus says, When I speak, the Father is validating what I'm saying. Every time I open my mouth, I get an amen from the Father. We see this over and over in the Gospel of John. Jesus says again and again, you cannot know God apart from me. If you want to know what God is like, look at me. If you want to know the character of God, look at me. And you can imagine the Pharisees are getting pretty amped up right now. They are pretty hot. Jesus is not letting down. He is only ratcheting it up more and more. And so they say to him in verse 25, Jesus, who are you? Who are you anyway? And he replies, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. If you want to know who I am, I've already told you. If you want to know who I am, look at my word. I've been telling you from the beginning exactly who I am. I am the word of God come to you. And you might be asking the same thing this morning. Jesus who are you? And his answer is the same to you. I am just who I've been telling you from the beginning. Do you want to know who Jesus is? Look at his word. The Bible from beginning to end is a story about him. The whole story points to him. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. If you want to know Jesus, he's found in his word. Who is Jesus? He is just who he's been telling us from the beginning. That from Genesis to Revelation, the story is about him. Not just the Feast of Booths, but everything points us to him. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you're wondering, who is Jesus? I don't think you'll find the answer in the documentaries that will come on in the next few weeks. But I do know that you'll come face to face with him as you encounter him in his word. If you want to know Jesus, you'll find him in his word. That is what we've been given. That's what we've promised. We've been promised is enough and is sufficient for all that we need. But you might ask, what does the Bible say to us about Jesus And lastly, Jesus points us to the heart of his message. 
Verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. John uses this phrase, lifted up, at least three times in the gospel, in, in chapter 3 and in chapter 12. And what he's saying in this, what Jesus is saying in this phrase is he's pointing to his cross. He's pointing us to when he will be lifted up on a cross to bear the sins of the world. He's saying, when you see me on the cross, then you will know who I am. When you see me naked and despised and beaten, when you see me humiliated and broken, then you will know who I am. It is on the cross that we see God in his most accessible form to us. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus on the cross. Do you, know, you want to know how much God loves the world? Look at Jesus on the cross, dying. Do you want to know how much God hates sin and brokenness? Even your brokenness? How he hates that even more than you do? Look at Jesus on the cross. Do you want to know how you can know God? How you can be in relationship with him? Look at Jesus on the cross. How do you know that Jesus has overcome your darkness? Look at the cross where he has overcome your darkness. Where Luke tells us that as he hung on the cross in the middle of the day, that it went dark from noon to three. How the Son hung on the cross to bear the sins of the world, and the Father turned out the lights. How all darkness and all sin and all pain and all suffering was put on him. Who is Jesus? It's a question we've all got to answer, whether you're a Christian or not. And it's one that Jesus answers for us in this passage. And he tells us, look at my word and look at my cross. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you've not left us in the dark when it comes to knowing you, that you have revealed yourself to us. Help us to believe, Uh, help us to trust in you, and we pray that you would take this word and that you, by your spirit, would change us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.